We're turning God's Word again to Acts chapter 2. We're considering the words in verse 33. Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that is Christ, poured out this, the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear. The Lord Jesus Christ was ready to leave for his home in heaven. His work on earth was completed. He had lived a life of complete obedience to the Father, fulfilling the law in our place. He had performed miracles, He had loved the people, shown great compassion, and taught and revealed the Father. And supremely on the cross, he gave his life as a substitute for our sin. And there on the cross, the Father poured out the wrath that we deserve because of our sin on him. That really was hell for the Lord Jesus Christ. But in his infinite person, he could absorb the intensity, the vastness, and the awfulness of divine wrath that we deserve to suffer eternally. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost, but only after saying, it is finished, Redemption has been won for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then on the third day he was raised from the dead and showed himself alive to to many, many, many people. Historically attested. And now he is ready to leave and go back to heaven where he belongs But before he leaves, he issues a command to the apostles. They were to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, which involved the Holy Spirit empowering them to preach and to evangelize, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea or Samaria, but to the uttermost parts of the earth. They needed power before they could begin their ministry. And when our Lord had finished these words, something extraordinary happened. In Acts chapter 1, we're told that as the disciples were still looking at Jesus, absorbing what he'd said, he began to ascend into the skies. Extraordinary. They'd never seen anything like it. And their eyes were fixed on him. And he went further and further out of their sight. And they kept on looking into space. Then remember how two angels came and said to them, 
Why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus you've seen go into heaven will come back in like manner. And so personally, and in glory one day, we don't know when, the Lord who ascended to heaven will come on the clouds of heaven with angels, archangels, with believers in heaven, And that will mark the end of the world. And our Lord Jesus will accomplish all the purposes which God has planned. The resurrection of the dead. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess Christ to be Lord. And eventually a new earth, a new heaven. The disciples remained in Jerusalem as they were commanded. There were about 120 believers, we're told, in Acts chapter 1, including the apostles. So they spent most of their time in fellowship and in prayer. And Acts chapter 2 begins with a reference to this period of waiting. And it was the, the day of Pentecost, a very special day in the Jewish religious calendar. It was also 50 days after the Passover. Many thousands of Jews had come from various parts of the Roman Empire. Jerusalem was crowded. And the believers waiting there on this special day kind of harvest festival. Something happens suddenly. And Luke draws attention to the suddenness of it. It was unexpected. It was quite shocking in one sense. The disciples were caught unawares. They were surprised when three supernatural signs were given. First of all, Luke says in verse 2 that there was a a rushing mighty wind from heaven. They'd never heard anything like it before. It was a heavenly wind. And all Luke can do is to describe it as a rushing mighty wind which filled the house where they were sitting. It also filled the city. People outside were aware of this sound. For those of you who know the Old Testament, you'll know that wind was important. You may recall the release of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And as they were travelling towards the wilderness, Pharaoh had changed his mind and sent his army to chase them and bring them back. And there was nowhere for the Israelites to go because the Red Sea was directly in front of them, the mountains on either side. Moses desperately is praying by the side of the water and God tells him, stop praying and touch the water with your staff. And he did that. And then an angel commanded a strong east wind to blow The waters divided. 
the ground was, was dried up. And they were able to cross to safety. Then, before the Egyptians could reach the other side, the waters rolled back. Wind, power, the presence of God. You may recall in Ezekiel 37, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. Hundreds, hundreds of bones, skeletons. And God commands breath for the bones to come together, flesh to be placed on it. And then God commands the wind to blow, life, breathe. A picture of what God does powerfully in enlivening, in giving life to the church in periods of revival. And here this sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind. God is present. The next supernatural sign is a fire, tongues of fire remaining on each of the believers in this house. That again would have been quite remarkable and I haven't time to go through all the Old Testament background. The pillar of fire which led and kept the Israelites safe by night as they travelled through the wilderness. Or the burning bush that Moses encountered when God called him. Or the dedication of the tabernacle in the wilderness but the altar where the burnt sacrifices would, would be offered. Have you noticed that the fire actually came down from heaven? It was supernatural. The fire did not go out. The sacrifice was accepted. It points to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wrath of God coming upon him. Devouring that fire and making peace for those who trust him. The third supernatural sign, we're told that they were filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 4. And they spoke in various dialects. So the Jews coming from various parts of the Roman Empire could understand them speaking and preaching in their dialect. The response of the people in the city eventually was to conclude that these disciples were drunk. They've had a little too much. And so Peter gets up to preach and reminds them that they're not drunk. It's the wrong time of the day to, to get alcohol and wine. But this is a fulfillment of what God promised through the prophet Joel. And then most of the sermon is about Jesus Christ. You can compare it. Three quarters of what Peter says. And this is just a, a precy. It's all about our Lord Jesus Christ. And at Pentecost, Jesus Christ is center stage. He's given the main attention. The searchlight is on the Lord Jesus. Not on experiences, not on the wind, not on the fire, not on the tongues, not on experiences, 
Not on the numbers of people converted. The attention is given to the Lord Jesus. And too often we are short-sighted. We don't see what is of major importance. We fasten on to details, phenomena, tongues, experiences, numbers, problems. If you have my experience, you go to an optician, you realize you're having some difficulty reading, and the optician will tell you, you need a stronger lens. And my, what a difference it makes when you have that new lens, a stronger lens. You're able to see more clearly. And as Christians and churches, we need a new lens. We need a lens that enables us to see the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. It's the need of churches worldwide. Never has there been such persecution on the part of Christians in the history of the church. They're being murdered, imprisoned, cruelly treated, tortured. In parts of Africa, militant groups are breaking into church services and shooting children, women, men. We're facing secularism, militant religions. Here in the West, we we have a militant, liberal philosophy, denying all the standards of God and regarding us as Christians as being the minority. We're fringe. And our heads are down. Many are discouraged. You travel parts of Wales and England, You see very small churches, groups of believers. You go miles and miles without seeing a gospel church. You'll meet isolated believers who are discouraged. They're longing for ministry, for fellowship. We're in desperate days worldwide. We need lens. And here in verse 33, Peter provides that lens for us. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. I want to say four things as briefly as I can about Pentecost. First of all, Pentecost proves the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you ever doubt that the Lord Jesus is exalted, look at Pentecost. And by exaltation, what we mean is that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died, he was raised the third day from the dead, victoriously, Vindicated. The Father accepted his sacrifice for our sin. 
met with heaven's approval. And so he is rewarded, he is raised from the dead. And the next stage is his ascension. As the disciples witnessed it. But that's not the end. When he ascended to heaven, he didn't just idly stand around. He was there, says Peter, exalted to the right hand of God. Position of absolute power and authority. And one day he will return a second time. That's what we mean by the exaltation of Jesus. He is raised from the dead. He is ascended to heaven. He is at the right hand of God the Father, invested with universal authority. And this is Peter's emphasis in our text. Our Lord talked about his resurrection. Destroy this temple, he said in John 2, and in three days I'll raise it again. The Jews thought he was talking about the physical temple. It was when our Lord raised from the dead that the disciples realized our Lord was foretelling his resurrection. Three times in Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10, the Lord Jesus tells his disciples he must suffer, he must be killed, he'll be raised again. Second time he gives more detail. By chapter 10 he gives more detail again. He's going to be exalted, though he will die on the cross for our sin. He will ascend to the Father. Remember in the garden of when Mary Magdalene thought that the Lord Jesus was the gardener? And when she recognizes him, she runs to him and holds him. In one translation, our Lord says, touch me not, but that's not the meaning. Don't cling to me. Don't imagine you've got me for good. You haven't. I've not yet ascended to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. I'm going to the Father. And here in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter argues this. From verse 22, look at his life, he tells the people. You know his miracles, the wonders and signs which he did. And yet him being delivered by the determinate purpose for knowledge of God, God's plan. And yet these people were responsible. You've taken him by lawless hands, crucified and put him to death. God has raised him up. Then he goes on to prove that the Lord Jesus Christ not only raised, he has ascended to heaven. He's at the right hand of God the Father. He tells us later in this message that David never ascended to heaven in his body. But the Lord Jesus Christ did. So the Lord Jesus Christ, exalted, raised, ascended, 
in session at the right hand of the Father. Pentecost is the proof of it. What happened here is a result of what the exalted Christ did. But secondly, let me just elaborate. Pentecost highlights the exaltation of Christ. He's now at the right hand of God the Father. Remember the end of Matthew's Gospel, he declares, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Absolute authority. He has no rival. No enemy can defeat him. No purpose of the Lord can be resisted successfully. He will fulfill all that the Father, the Son, the Spirit have planned. Absolute authority. And the Lord that we worship, exalted in heaven, has absolute dominion over this world, over all the nations and governments, over the enemies of the people, over our little churches and our big churches. He's in control. Down in verses 34 to 35 here, Peter again is pressing this point. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. David was referring to the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord, the very one whom Jehovah instructed to sit at his right hand. It's the exalted Christ who revives the church at Pentecost. The church now becomes the body of Christ. Our Lord frees the church from the state of Israel. It becomes international. All the shadows and types have disappeared. And the church is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Our Lord is absolute, exalted in heaven. There's a fascinating sermon preached by one of the old Calvinistic Methodist preachers at the end of the 18th and early 19th century in Wales. His name was Ebenezer Morris and he laboured in Cardiganshire, though he travelled Wales preaching in the associations and district meetings. He was a, a, a profound Christian and a powerful preacher. And he knew the, the power of the Lord upon his ministry. Now, on this occasion, he was preaching in Lamberta, the district meeting of the elders of Calvinistic Methodist churches in that part of West Wales. He took as his text Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. We have such a high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high and he delineated carefully in some depth the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator, rewarded, glorified, exalted in heaven, caring for the church. 
And towards the end of the sermon, he begins to relate what people in the churches were telling him. And they were complaining. Complaining and saying, well, the, the old preachers who were used of God have gone to glory. Daniel Rowlands, Howell Harris, William Williams, and so forth. The younger men are nothing like them. And you will not be here long. And he goes on sort of repeating what the, these Christians were saying. Where will the preachers come from? Who will give us preachers of fire? What will happen to the churches? And I love the part of the message where after describing these questions, Modest turns to the congregation. Don't just tell me, he said. Tell the high priest. Tell the exalted Christ. He is in charge of the church. He's on the throne, he said. He cares for the church. It is Christ exalted who lights the lights in the sanctuary. And one report declares that Morris sort of shouted out even more loudly, our great high priest, exalted. Ask him, says Morris. Plead with him. He it is who lights the lamps in our churches. He keeps the fire going. He calls men to preach and he equips them. Ask him. We need a new lens as Christians. We need to raise the level of our praying and our asking and our believing. Christ is exalted. He is in charge of the church. We need to, to pray earnestly, believingly. What about our praying? What are we asking him for in our church prayer meetings? It's good to pray for ordinary things and for the needs of people. But oh, we need to ask the exalted high priest to come and intervene for his church and his glory today. Thirdly, notice the Pentecost illustrates the fact that God keeps his promises. Now many of you here I know recognize this fact and you've been encouraged over the years reading the Bible and you discover a statement, a promise there and you're encouraged, you, you believe it, you, you pray about it and you can testify that God honored that promise. Many of us can do that. The Lord always honours his word and his promises. His promises in Christ are yea and amen. They are guaranteed. You can pray them, you can believe them, and you can ask, expect God to answer them. And here at Pentecost, we have examples of the exalted Christ 
honouring promises. First obvious one is Joel in chapter 2 of that prophet. And Peter refers to these verses in verses 17 to 21. Joel worked and preached centuries previously, possibly contemporary with Hosea and Amos, we're not sure. He lived in Jerusalem, preached in Judah. It was a time of, of, of temple judgment as well. He called the people to repentance. And in the difficulties and darkness, he gives the promises. It shall come to pass in the last days. The days between Pentecost and the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The promise is kept. Yes, the church waited a long time for it. And there are other promises in the Old Testament foretelling Pentecost. And the Lord has honoured it. The Lord Jesus Christ himself talked about the helper, the Holy Spirit, in John chapter 14, whom the Father will send in my name. Again in chapter 15, he says, when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The exalted Christ has fulfilled the prophecy of Joel and other prophecies. He has honoured the words and the promises he gave to his own disciples. And he has received the promise of the Father. In the economy of the Trinity, the Father pledging and giving the Holy Spirit to the Son. We have a picture of this in Psalm 2 where the Father says to the Son, today I have begotten you. Not created him, but crowned him, honoured him, exalted him. I have set my king upon the hill. And I will ask of me and I will give you the nations of the earth. Promises the Father gave to the Son. And now exalted in heaven, the Lord Jesus has received the promises of the Father. The Holy Spirit is now being sent. The nations are given to him. And he will call out from all the nations of the world, the elect. And the exalted Christ will do this by the Spirit, through the gospel. It will not fail. No need to have our heads down. He will keep his promise. The promise he made to the disciples in Acts chapter 1. Wait here for the promise of the Father. And the promise was kept. Do you believe God's word and his promises? Can you rely upon them? Can you rely upon the exalted head of the church? Do you believe that if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, that he will add to us all that we need in order to do that? 
Do you believe the Lord Jesus when he says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children? How much more? Do you believe it? How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them and ask him? But in the context of asking, it's in the context of seeking, looking deliberately, intentionally, knocking, not giving in. How much more shall the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? God keeps his word. And Pentecost provides the evidence. I close on this note. That Pentecost describes Christ's empowering of the church by the Spirit. Empowering preachers and also believers. So in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter says in our text, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Filled with the Spirit. Believers before Pentecost were regenerate in the Old Testament. Believers. Because of the sin of Adam, we're totally depraved. Noah could not love and trust God without the Holy Spirit. Nor could Abram or Moses or David. And so this group of 120 were already regenerate. They already trusted in Christ. The Old Testament saints trusted the Christ of prophecy. But now there's a difference. There's the abundance, the superabundance of the Spirit being given to his people. The church becomes the habitation of God the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, the Lord speaks that you shall receive power, dynamite, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You might think, is this true? Is this just a dream? Are we living in the past? I sometimes hear people, oh yeah, you, you watch people, you talk about revivals. But we're in the 21st century, we're in a different age. Which is all right for that period, but not for today. Or some would say it's a figment of the imagination. We're just dreaming. But look down to verse 37 in this chapter. Peter now concludes his message. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It's very difficult translating it. They were in agony. They were convicted. They were distressed. They were aware of their guilt and their responsibility, their sin. They were given a fear of God. The word which had been preached had pierced them, cut them to the heart. Emotionally, mentally, This is no pipe dream. 
you shall receive power, said the Lord Jesus. And you have 3,000 people here, cut to the heart. They didn't say to Peter, that was a very nice message, Peter, thank you. Yeah, perhaps we had a part in the crucifixion, we're sorry about that. No one went to Peter and said, well, I, I enjoyed that, that was quite fascinating. I liked your explanation. No one said to Peter, well, Peter, come again. You're invited to come to our area and preach to us. No one said to him, well, you, you made it really interesting. You kept my attention all the time. That's the kind of comment I hear sometimes in services, after services. I enjoy that. But here, the power of the Spirit. They were cut to the heart. What shall we do? They were desperate. They were in the wrong relationship with God. God was angry. They'd sinned. And Peter tells them, repent. Turn away from sin. Turn towards God in obedience and in faith. Trust in Christ for forgiveness and be baptized. 3,000 people converted. And the interesting thing is that that was not a one-off. If you turn to chapter 4, verse 4, we read that many who heard the word believed. There were revivals after Acts chapter 2. And in chapter 4, verse 4, we're told that the many who heard the word believed, including 5,000 men. I can't get my mind around it. 5,000 men. Young men. Fathers, grandfathers, uncles, cousins. Can you imagine the impact they'd have had upon their family, their workplace, their neighborhood, their synagogues? 5,000 men. Chapter 4, verse 8 again. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. One filling isn't enough. The preacher must go back to the Lord and beg the Lord to, to fill again, to empower them in preaching. In verse 14 of chapter 5, Luke tells us believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. Power. An astonishing statement in chapter 6, verse 7. The word of God spread, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great number of priests were added to the church. It was non-stop. Scores, hundreds, thousands were coming to faith. Power. And power belongs to the exalted Christ. And here we are helpless. We cannot save anyone. We have to be faithful in witnessing. But we have the exalted Christ. It tells us to seek him, to pray. 
He has shed forth this. In closing, let me remind you of the history of Heath. Not that I know it in great detail. But I've been looking at the beginnings particularly. I suppose it really begins with the passion, the burden, and the prayers of a man, the Reverend John Pugh. And a few others who were concerned about the Heath area. John Pugh had been brought up in Montgomeryshire near the English border. Belonged with his parents to the Calvinistic Methodist Church. At the age of 14, his father, with another Christian businessman, had a contract to build the railway from Pembroke to Tenby. So in 1860, they went down and they lived in Tenby. And we know the house they, they lived in. Before he left Montgomeryshire, John Pugh promised his aunt that he would read the Bible every day, which he did. But he worked for his father then. And he mixed with the labourers, laying the lines and building bridges. He began to drink alcohol, became worldly, went further and further away from the Lord, even though he would go to church on a Sunday. And the other Christian businessman partnering his father had a burden. And he arranged for two ministerial students to preach to the labourers during the summer periods. And through one of them, John Pugh was converted and immediately had a passion for unbelievers, people to be saved. The love of God is so wonderful, he said, they must hear about it. And before long, he felt a call to the Christian ministry. He went to the college in Trevecca. He suffered it for three years. He wasn't an academic. I suspect he would have headaches in some lectures. There's a, there was a habit then, once a week, for a student to preach, and the students to make their comments. And John Pugh heard one student preach, and he, Pugh was asked by the principal, what did you think? Lovely prose, he said. But please don't preach it in any church. No one will be saved. That was his burden. People to be saved. And finishing in Trevecca, he was open to a call to a church. But some of the men laboring on the railway, the work was almost complete, they took jobs in the Tredegar area in the tin industry, in the mining. And they built a, a tin chapel on, on the base, on the ground where, where cinders was just the base. There were about 20 or 30 of them. We'll ask John Pugh to come as our pastor. And he did. And if I say hundreds were converted, it's no exaggeration. A man of prayer, 
a man burdened for the gospel, crushed in my spirit, he would often say. And then he went to Pontypris, he described as a den of iniquity. Again, the same things happened. Many conversions came to Cardiff. He established folk movement halls in various places. He overworked. He died young at 61. But in 1900, they started open-air meetings here, and John Pugh was involved. And they started cottage prayer meetings. And then the hall at the back was, was built. In 1904, the revival touched this place. And there were two evangelistic meetings. And the report is that a hundred people were converted in those two meetings. There was power. 1906, this church building was opened. 1907, John Pugh was gravely ill. And the last days, he asked for a minister from Tanapandi to go and see him, and Francis Cole. And he'd witnessed revival in Tanapandi. Again, scores, scores, scores of people converted. And John Pugh said to Francis Cole, I want you to be the minister of Heath. And he agreed there and then. And then very quickly the members agreed. It was all decided. And for 11 years Cole ministered. From what I can see from the records, about 400 people were converted through his ministry and remained in this church. Others were converted and went to other churches. There's power. Mid-60s, early 70s, there was a touch of heaven here and power. God has been good since. We mustn't despise the day of small things. The ordinary work of the Spirit continues, and individuals are being converted, saints are being built up. But oh, heaven is open to us. The Lord is able to revive his church able to empower the preaching of the gospel, able to sweep thousands of people in the Heath area into his kingdom. Prayer, a new lens, the exalted Christ. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray that by your Spirit you will write these words upon our hearts and minds. And just open our eyes to see 
the wonder, the glory, the beauty, the power, the love, the compassion of our exalted Saviour. We ask it in his name. Amen. The closing hymn is in the supplement, one of praise to the Lord. Christ triumphant, ever reigning, Saviour, Master, King.